Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, super quick computer switches and a new algorithmic way to measure heart health. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. So listeners, as you may know, we are all working from home at the moment due to the coronavirus outbreak. So that might be why things sound slightly different. For instance, I'm currently in a pillar fort recording this. Sharmini, where are you coming to me from? Oh, mine's one step up from that. It's actually a sofa cushion fort. Ooh. It was um, carefully constructed by, well, initially by me, and then it fell down and my flatmate, who's an engineer, had to come in and rescue me and explain how, you know, buildings work. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> how buildings work. <laughs> when they're made of sofa cushions. She she made it stable is the important point. I now have a structurally stable sofa cushion studio so that I can uh, record these lovely podcast links. Well, as long as it's structurally stable enough that you manage to get through the rest of the show with me, I think we'll be good. Hopefully. So with the obvious audio differences in mind, we're keeping the main nature podcast as normal as humanly possible. And for a little light relief, we're making it somewhat of a coronavirus-free zone. If you are interested in coronavirus updates, though, then please check out our new show, Coronapod, coming to you on Fridays. Back to Nature Podcast now, though, and Sharmini, what's coming up first this week? Well, first up, we are talking about switches. So switches are pretty useful in electronics, and not just for starting up your games console – The very zeros and ones that make up the digital world are created by switches, known as transistors, which turn tiny voltages on and off. But not all switches are equal. In some transistors, going from off to on might take a billionth of a second. And while for many applications that's quite fast enough, for others, switching on or off extremely quickly is crucial. Now physicists have found a way to use a surprisingly simple mechanism to make an ultra-fast electrical switch. It can flick on a sizable voltage in just a trillionth of a second. 
and that can be used to generate radiation that has exciting uses in things like medical imaging. Nature reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to physicist Ellison Mattioli to find out more. She started by asking him how switches are used in the world of electronics. So switches are widely used most frequently in the form of transistors. Uh, they switch from a conducting state to an insulating state. So you can transmit information, you can also do calculations, you can do a lot of different operations using, using switches. And in your work, you've come up with a switch that is incredibly fast. Why might you want a switch to be fast? What are the advantages of that? So switching fast is extremely important in, in many different applications. But in our case, we're interested in generating uh, extremely fast electromagnetic radiations. And if you can switch extremely fast electric fields, you can produce a wave that propagates in a very high frequency. And our goal was to generate waves in the terahertz. So why can't we use regular electronic switches to make these very, very fast transitions? So regular electronic switches nowadays are based on semiconductors. And the semiconductors have some limitations in terms of how fast the electrons can flow inside them. And that limits the switch speed and the output power that they can transmit. So you want to create these very high-powered but very, very fast switches. What approach did you take? So our approach was completely different than the typical approach that, uh, that exists today. So instead of using a semiconductor uh, element, we basically use just two pieces of metal spaced by a very, very narrow gap in between. So the idea is that if you apply a small voltage, there's no conduction between the two pads, so electrons don't flow between them. And when you apply enough voltage, electrons start conducting through air or through any kind of gas that you have in between. And how do the electrons actually flow then? So you have a, a field so strong that suddenly they literally are wrenched out of one and go into the other. Exactly. You apply just enough electric fields so you can extract the electrons from one metal and they come to the other one. And can you give a sense of just how fast the switch works, how quickly this change from insulating to conducting happens? The switches are, are extremely fast. So we could, in our laboratory, we could measure up to 12 volts per picosecond. That's 12 volts in a trillionth of a second. Uh, this is more than 10 times faster than any semiconductor uh, device that exists today. And this has more than 200 times higher power than what's possible with a semiconductor device today. But that's what we could measure because, uh, to be honest, we were limited by the, the speed of our measurement setup. So the same way that making an electronic device that it can produce these signals is extremely challenging, we don't have any device that can measure these extremely high speed signals. So we oftentimes need to do indirect measurements to know where we are. So you've got this switch that happens very, very fast. What then are you going to use that for? So these devices are extremely simple. They consist just of two pieces of metals very close together, and they can be easily integrated to many kinds of devices. They can be integrated with antennas if you want to radiate these fast signals. So when, once you have this high frequency waves being radiated, you can do many things. Of course, communication is, a, is a, an obvious one because the higher the frequency, the more data you can transmit. But there are many other applications where terahertz waves are extremely interesting. For example, in imaging, 
These kind of waves are non-destructive waves. They are non-ionizing. So when they go through biological materials, they basically don't do any damage to the tissue or cells. So it's a, it's a nice way to do bioimaging without causing any damage to biological materials. Are there any applications that aren't involving using this very fast switch to create a high-frequency wave? Could you use just the switch in itself for anything? There are many applications that it can use the switch in itself. For example, uh, one application that we're looking at is in protecting devices. So those switches, they can turn on and off extremely fast. So if a high voltage is applied to a very sensitive device, they are much faster than the device itself. And could we use a device like this in a computer like we use a transistor today? So these devices are not meant to replace transistors. So transistors, they have a an extra uh, terminal to control their conductive or insulating states. Uh, these devices are, lo- are a lot more simple, but it's meant to be a different way to generate high frequency and high power waves. That was Ellison Mattioli of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Switzerland, talking to Lizzie Gibney. Ellison's paper is online now on the Nature website, and we'll provide a link in the show notes. Next up, it's time for the research highlights, coming to you direct this week from Dan Fox's Pillow Fort. Listen to this. That was the sound of a huge chunk of ice breaking off of a glacier in Svalbard, Norway, recorded from underwater. Now exactly how big do you think it sounded? That was the question the researchers who recorded this wanted to find out. They used underwater microphones to record the sound made by ice breaking off of the glacier and into the ocean. They could then use that audio to extrapolate the amount of ice that broke off each time. They think that underwater microphones could provide a useful method for tracking how much ice is being lost in events which are often too small and frequent to see on satellite images. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Read the rest of the paper at the Cryosphere. In the next 10 years, automated flying drones will be delivering everything from insulin prescriptions to chicken jow phrasey, if you believe some news coverage at least. But this drone-driven future could be a step closer to reality thanks to a team of researchers at the University of Zurich. They've developed a flying drone capable of dodging obstacles 10 times faster than existing ones. To test its dodging ability, researchers did the obvious thing, pitching balls at it they found that it started to dodge an incoming ball in just 3.5 milliseconds, significantly faster than conventional drones. To accomplish this deft dodging, the drone is fitted with a type of motion-detecting camera called an event camera. Instead of recording images, an event camera outputs a stream of data points triggered by changes in environmental brightness allowing the drone to identify moving objects much more quickly than if it was using a regular camera. Don't dodge that research over at Science Robotics. Next up on the show, is there a better way to measure cardiac health? Ali Jennings has been getting to the heart of the matter, and he comes to us now from under a duvet. 
That's the soothing lub-dub of a healthy heart. The lub sound comes when the ventricles of the heart, the chambers that pump blood out into the body, are at their fullest. The dub comes after the ventricles have contracted at their emptiest. If you compare the volume of blood in the ventricles before contraction to the volume after the blood's been ejected, you get a useful measure of the heart's health, the ejection fraction. A high ejection fraction shows that the heart is pumping strongly. A low fraction suggests that the heart muscle could be weak. In this way, the measure provides an early warning sign of heart problems. To calculate a person's ejection fraction, the most common method is to take an ultrasound of the heart. This produces a grainy black and white video of the patient's beating heart. The clinician then goes through the video, searching for the moment when the left ventricle is at its largest and when it's at its smallest. They must then outline the two areas by hand for comparison. It's actually pretty labor-intensive right, to trace out the heart and to find the right frames. This is James So, a computer scientist from Stanford University in the US. And that's why typically the clinician would only do this for one beat of the heart, where actually it's recommended that one should actually do this across multiple beats to get a better sense of the average cardiac function. To speed up this laborious process, this week in Nature, James and his team demonstrate an algorithm that can analyse echocardiogram videos and calculate the ejection fraction all by itself. And the algorithm seems to have an edge over the clinicians. It's actually very easy for, to, for it to look at all of the beats from the ultrasound and compute some sort of average ejection fraction across all of the beats. And that's actually really clinically really important because for some heart uh, issues, there's a variability across different beats in the same patient. And if we only trace out one beat, then that could actually be missing a lot of that important variability. The algorithm does the exact same thing that the clinicians do, but it can do it over every beat in a video in the same time it takes a clinician to draw out one beat. Then it can calculate an ejection fraction that is more reliable and accurate. This means better diagnosis and treatment for people with vulnerable hearts. The next step for James is to make the algorithm adaptable, able to work in any hospital and with any equipment. We can also show and we can train it to be also be robust across different hospitals and also robust across different ultrasound machines. Of course, I think there's still a lot of more work that we need to do and we are actively working on that to really make sure that this generalizes also across other countries, across very different environments, especially in low resource settings. James hopes his AI will be especially useful in places like this, which might lack trained cardiologists. And eventually, James imagines his AI having even broader applications. I think we would love to, for example, have this tool extended so that based on the ultrasound videos, we can predict other diseases, right? So for example, diabetes and other heart failures. So that's something we hope to be able to train the algorithm to be able to predict going forward. For now, though, 
James's team will start running pilot tests on the Stanford population this year, and hope to start testing in other hospitals and countries in 2021. So maybe in the not too distant future, you'll find your local cardiologist has teamed up with their computer to help keep your heart healthy, beat by beat. That was Ali Jennings talking to James So. You can find James's paper at nature.com, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Normally, right now we'd have the news chat, but as I'm sure you can appreciate, everything is rather coronavirus-focused at the moment. So, for more on that, you can check out our new Coronapod coming this Friday. And that's pretty much it for this week's show. Do get in touch with us if you want to let us know how you're dealing with the outbreak, or if you have any fun distractions that we can share. And to do that, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Also, you can get in touch with us by email at podcast@nature.com. I'm Nick Cow, and I'm Sharmini Bundell. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, ninety-six percent replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a thirty-night guarantee. Plus, get fifteen percent off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.